Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. Politics is often where we see the questions around gender and leadership played out at the highest levels on the most public of stages. So with less than a week to go before the US election, today I'm speaking to an expert analyst on what we might expect to see when voting closes and ballots are counted. Is it going to be a re-elected President Trump or a new beginning in President Joe Biden? The answer to that question matters to the whole world. My guest is a journalist and senior political reporter at 538 and host of the 538 Politics podcast. 538 is known for writing news stories driven by data analysis. It is also the website I have been checking constantly in the lead up to the US election. Claire Malone, a very warm welcome to a podcast of one's own. Thank you very much for having me. Claire, overwhelmingly the audience for this podcast is not American. So I want to start by asking you to describe what 538 does. Everyone listening would be familiar with opinion polls. Here in Australia, our newspapers regularly publish News Poll or the AC Nielsen Poll, which tell us people's voting intentions, their degree of satisfaction with political leaders, and who's the preferred Prime Minister. But 538 takes this to a whole other level. Can you explain that for us? Sure. It's very American in the sense that we, t- we took it to the next level. We had, we had to do a, an nth degree polling site. So Nate Silver is the guy who started this website, and his background was actually initially as a data statistician for baseball. So he was very into sports and kind of got into politics because his hometown or the place where he was living in Chicago was trying to form a law against gambling. And so he got really into politics because he wanted to be able to sports gamble. And he realized that like sports, politics actually has tons and tons of numbers, i.e. polls, that aren't really used to the public's benefit. Obviously, you know, politicians use a lot of internal polling. There's, you know, Gallup in the United States has been polling Americans since I believe the late 1930s. But there wasn't a way that the polling universe was being articulated in a in kind of layman's terms. And so starting in 2008, Nate kind of did this thing, which was build what we now call the presidential polling model, which is an aggregate of all of the polls that are taken 
average together because our kind of our internal site mantra is, you know, the average is better than a single poll. Don't cherry pick a poll. And, you know, he, he throws in a bunch of economic and historical factors into his presidential model. But basically what, what churns out and what people are clicking on this time of year is a probabilistic forecast of who might win any given election. In this case, the U.S. presidential election. So that's kind of the central death star of our site is this forecasting model. And then we try to write journalism. I actually came from very traditional journalism magazines. And what I try to do in my writing is use polling and stats as a guide for, you know, the 30,000 foot view of things and then say, okay, and here's a human story to make it more digestible and to tell you what those polls actually mean. So it's trying to make that data more friendly to the journalism that people typically understand. So against that background, the question everybody in the world is asking each other, who's going to (laughs) win? The model says that Joe Biden has an 88 in 100 chances of winning the White House. So that so we we've actually changed this slightly so people who are familiar with the website will know that in 2020 we convey our probabilities a little bit differently. So instead of using I think in 2016 we would say Hillary Clinton has a 73% chance of winning the White House. Well, we realized that people had a bit of a hard time wrapping their heads around the idea of probabilities. So now we say in 88 out of 100 universes Joe Biden will win the election. And so just to make sure we're all understanding that, that does mean that in 12 out of 100 universes, or let's call that 10%, Donald Trump wins. So it's like the odds of me saying, you're about to get into your car and I say, there's a one in 10 chance there's a bomb in the car. Do you still go and get in the car? I don't think I would get in the car. So (laughs) it's a a great way of putting it. So yes, we are, you know, there is still a very decent chance that Donald Trump could win the election. This afternoon, I was reading through some of our site's 2016 coverage, and Nate Silver wrote an article that was talking about the likelihood of the potential for having a split between the popular vote and the electoral college, and and a circumstance in which Trump would win the electoral college but lose the popular vote, which, by the way, is what ended up happening. And he gave that possibility a 10% chance of happening. So if I were reading this four years ago, I would say, oh, 10% chance, it's probably not going to happen. But it did happen. And so I think that to me, that's, you know, another little reminder that yes, the numbers, the big number says 88 and 100 chances that Biden wins, but probabilities mean that Trump still has a decent chance. Can we have a look at the comparison to 2016? At this late stage of the 2016 election, where was Hillary Clinton versus Trump compared with Joe Biden now? So probabilistically, Clinton and Biden's numbers at this point in time aren't all that different. They had and have similar chances of winning the White House. What I do think is different in 2020 from 2016 is, first of all, in 2016, Trump and Clinton were two historically disliked presidential candidates. So they had the highest unfavorable ratings of any politicians who had ever run for president. Trump, I think for, you know, for reasons that lots of people know and have seen over the course of his four years, he can be a crass person. He's had lots of trouble with the law and with women, you know, lots of reasons like that. And then on the other side, Hillary Clinton has been in American life for decades and decades. I think she has been the subject of sexism for decades and decades, but also was seen as a candidate who was not accessible. 
perhaps because she had been subject to decades of sexism, but wasn't a well-liked figure. And so there were lots of, at this point in time in the campaign, undecided voters, actually. Whereas right now, four years later, pretty much everyone in America, if you're voting, you kind of know who you're voting for, which means that we feel a little bit more sure about the polls. There isn't as much fluidity with undecided voters, because there were a certain number of undecided voters in 2016 who broke late for Donald Trump for a variety of, of reasons. James Comey's letter comes to mind. So that's kind of the biggest difference in the race right now, even if those probabilities for Biden and Clinton look very similar. Your election system has voluntary voting. Here in Australia, we have compulsory voting. So it's quite different. Obviously, with voluntary voting, people can choose whether or not they want to vote. How do you factor that into the model? And how are people voting this time? Obviously, with COVID, voting mechanisms are going to be different. The early vote is always a question, you know, people will always ask in any election, does the high number of Democrats voting early mean, you know, that Democrats will win? And typically we say, no, it doesn't. There are certain demographic groups that might like to vote earlier. So older white people in Florida who might, you know, be a bit of a swing group, but might tilt Republican like to vote early by mail, whereas a lot of African Americans, because of a history of disenfranchisement, like to vote in person early. And that's the way they do it. So we typically say, you're not going to be able to tell too much about the early vote. It's a little bit more interesting with COVID. We've already had, I think, as we're talking today on, on Monday in the evening, my time, I believe 60 million Americans have already voted. And we are projecting that this is going to be the highest turnout election in American history. And certainly quite a lot of those people are voting by mail. So we can't tell anything from the early vote necessarily outside of it's going to be a very high turnout election probably. And we're seeing those indications from the early vote. We might be seeing more young people turning out, which might be a good thing for Democrats. But, you know, with all of these vote by mail ballots, and I'm not sure how familiar listeners outside of the U.S. might be, but there are a lot of legal battles currently going on in various states and will surely happen after votes are cast on November 3rd about the validity of mail ballots. Ever since the pandemic started, Trump and the Republican Party have been, I would say, trying to politicize mail-in voting. So this gets a bit bureaucratic, but there will be potential litigation about whether or not ballots are valid because of signatures. You know, does this signature on your ballot match the signature on file? And all of that stuff will happen during the vote counting period. So we're also cautioning that people should not expect a result on election night or even the morning after, that it will take a long time to count these ballots. So we should maybe think of it as election week or election month, realistically. I want to ask you about two aspects of election week or election month rather than election day and an outcome. It's certainly going to mess with people's ability to have parties, but let's put that to one side. Presumably <laughs> COVID's messed with that ability anyway. But two aspects of that. What's the likelihood that the on-the-day ballots favour President Trump and so the early voting results look like President Trump is doing well and then as the mailed-in ballots get counted, he gets pegged back and it becomes clear it's Joe Biden. And the reason I'm asking you that is, one, I think it's good for people to have it in their head how it might play out as the ballots are counted, but also do you think if it happens like that, it could feed into civil disobedience, even violence in the US because Trump supporters will think we've won 
and then they will view their win as being dragged away from them. I think often the way people watch elections is on cable. By dint of the medium, they have to give you updates constantly. And so they'll say, Trump is up at 5 p.m. in such and such Florida County. And I think people can draw conclusions from that. And often, actually, there's a phenomenon where a lot of states often look more Republican earlier on in a voting day. But when polls close at seven or eight, there's often a lot of people who show up right before the polls close. So sometimes we don't get results until much later at night. So my full caution is you got to wait till everything is counted. You know, it doesn't tell you anything what the vote count is at 4 p.m. or 5 p.m. It matters what it is at the end of the day. And I do think that that is a big problem because most people consume elections via cable, which needs to kind of keep counting things. So we kind of say, hold your horses. You got to wait till the end of the night. And again, it's a whole different ballgame this time around. So I'm not even sure what it's going to look like in certain states. There are certain states where we know, okay, potentially we need to watch the state. Pennsylvania is one that comes to mind and it's a big state. But we are very much, I will say, still kind of trying to wrap our minds around what election night and the morning after and the day after will look like. You know, Trump has been alarmingly cavalier with the way he has talked about when asked the peaceful transfer of power, or even (laughs) the idea of conceding an election or conceding that there is no result in an election, right? And so I do think that Trump has the power to potentially confuse people at best and motivate people towards unrest at worst. But I should caution, I think that I don't want to play that up because I'm not completely sure that that's a thing that is within the realm of possibility. I think it's very possible that Trump will get on television and say confusing things that we'll have to fact check a lot. I would hope that there is, you know, is nothing more than that. And I would hope that whatever way the the election result comes in, that everything is peaceful and that we have kind of clear answers from politicians. But American newsrooms right now are all having sort of tough discussions about how to handle fact checking the president in the case that, that he might say something misleading on election night or false about the results of the election. And that is an odd conversation to be having and not an ideal position for American media to be in, because obviously we're at a period where a lot of Americans don't trust the media to begin with, right? So we're already in a bad position and, you know, it's put in an even worse position when you have to kind of come out and say, potentially, well, this isn't right, what this person in power is saying to you. I'm going to ask you another thing that happens post the ballot and which is mysterious to people around the world, which is the difference between the popular vote and the electoral college. One of the most asked questions of me as I was just moving around Australia after 2016 was, Julia, how come? How come Hillary lost when most people voted for her? So people watch that and they're obviously trying to figure out how the Electoral College versus the popular vote might play into this election. So for non-Americans, could you decode that for us? It's very confusing. I even get nervous explaining it to other people because I almost know for sure I will confuse people. But here's what I'll say. When Americans vote, they don't actually vote for the president. They vote for a slate of people, electors, who will then elect the president. And every state has a certain number of electors. So there are 538 votes in the Electoral College. You need 270 of those votes to win the presidency. The reason why Hillary Clinton lost the election, even though she won the popular vote by 3 million, which is the largest popular vote versus Electoral College win, is that she didn't win the Electoral College. The reason why we have the Electoral College, it's a compromise that the the founders made. 
And in sort of the same way that the U.S. Senate is meant to give balance to smaller states, so every state has two senators no matter what, the Electoral College was also created in order to make sure that those states weren't left out. And so what that means in practicality is that the votes of some states matter very much, and the votes of other states do not matter at all, even if millions and millions and millions of people turn out to vote in those states. So for instance, I am coming to you from New York State, a state with a decent number of electoral votes, a super high population because New York City is here and it's, it's always blue. It's not a state that's in question ever. So no matter how many millions of people show up to vote in New York State, it doesn't really matter all that much. Where it does matter are these kind of the medium-sized states. So you've got California and Texas, which are California is always blue and it's got lots of electoral votes. And Texas is usually pretty red and it's got lots of electoral votes. This time it's a little more on the margin. Usually we don't pay as much attention to those states. We pay attention to the, the states with the winnable medium number of electoral votes. So Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, Florida. And that's where campaigns end up focusing because those are the states that shift and those are the electoral votes that they need. It's an extremely complicated system that Americans have tried to abolish at various points in time. We might be coming up on another one of those points in time in the next couple of decades where people say, this is a crazy and convoluted system. And I do think you're seeing a lot more of that movement in the United States. And so the rest of the world is very right to be confused by our system. <laughs> and to add to the confusion, we do the colours the other way round. Oh. Yeah, and, and we actually use the term liberal to refer to our Conservative Party here. So our Conservative Party is called the Liberal Party and people would associate it with the colour blue and the Progressive Party, the Democrat equivalent, is the Labor Party and people would associate it with the colour red. But in the US, that switched around. And so it's blue for Democrats and red for Republicans. And completely arbitrary, we should say. I think that started in like the 80s or something. Some graphics guy at one of the big networks said, OK, the Democrats are blue and the Republicans are red. And now it's taken on existential meeting. <laughs> if it's really messy... You've got ballots being counted, you've got disputation as to whether or not postal ballots should be counted, signatures matching or some other perceived flaw in those postal ballots. Who decides? Who decides who wins if it's messy? <laughs> A very controversial question. If there are disputes about, let's say, the validity of ballot signatures, and I keep on coming back to that example because I think it's one that will be important and also important will be whether or not ballots are accepted by a certain date after the election. I think we're going to see a lot of court cases and potentially those court cases could be kicked up to the Supreme Court. So, you know, there are scenarios in which the Supreme Court, again, decides the U.S. election. I'm not sure how likely that scenario is. We saw in 2000 in Bush v. Gore, they were counting ballots well through December and there was a court case in December. You know, the new president, no matter what, takes office on January 20th. So we have to have it all sorted out by January 20th. But I think the question that you're asking is one that I'm almost not able to answer because I think so much of it will go through the U.S. court system potentially. And frankly, that is... A really complicated thing. Election law is pretty complicated and we're all kind of trying to learn it on the fly a little bit. But I think that there is a good possibility that we could see recounts or some disputed ballots making their way into the court system. 
And where are women voters in all of this? When you break down the polls by gender, what different voting patterns do you see by women? Well, overall, in 2016, we saw the biggest gender gap ever in American history, which means I believe that there was something like a 15 or 20 point difference between how women and men voted. Men voted for Donald Trump overall and women voted for Hillary Clinton overall. And so that's obviously really stark, that American gender experience. And we actually saw it when Brett Kavanaugh, who is the controversial nominee to the Supreme Court, who was accused of sexually assaulting a a girl when he was in high school, that obviously turned into a very gendered perception of Brett Kavanaugh. Women didn't want him and men did want him to be on the court. So we see a, a pretty split political psyche between American men and American women. When you break it down by demographics, you know, white women, I think very famously overall voted for Donald Trump in 2016. When you break it down a little bit further, college educated white women are trending towards the Democrats. And that trend is accelerated during the Trump presidency, particularly during the 2018 midterms. White women without a college education are certainly very much voted for Donald Trump during the 2016 election, but have shifted also slightly towards the Democratic column in the past couple of years, including the midterms. So I actually think that 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 white, non-college educated woman will be really interesting to watch in, in this election. But we've spent a lot of time talking about white, college educated women, those suburban women that Trump occasionally tries to talk to, because they have most radically changed their political positions. Black women and Latino women tend to vote for Democrats, Black women almost overwhelmingly, and they are one of the voting bedrocks of the Democratic Party. So that's kind of where women in America are. It is mostly trending towards the Democrats. And what are the big issues for women voters, do you think? Right now, I think everyone in the U.S. is particularly concerned about COVID-19, even among Republican voters, you know, in in 2016 and even in 2018 midterms, you know, you saw a lot of people concerned about immigration. I think that's that's fallen down the list of things a little bit. And COVID-19 is a huge worry for people. I think women in particular are affected by COVID-19 in all the ways that we all are. But economically, it has hit women a lot harder. I saw a stat recently, and it was talking about of the number of people who have had to leave the workforce because of childcare during the pandemic, 80% of those have been women. And I think if you're a woman you and a mother, you've probably kind of intuitively, that makes sense. I mean, it's sort of, it's a crazy number to see, but everything, <laughs> everything that, that we know about society tells us like, yeah, that makes sense. So I think for American women, healthcare and childcare are big issues. Healthcare in particular, though, most Americans, you know, right now are very interested in healthcare, COVID-19, and the economy. Those are sort of the big issues. But I would break that down and say that childcare you've seen in both parties, the Democrats quite prominently in this Democratic primary talked about childcare. I'd say it's no coincidence that we had a historic number of women running in that Democratic primary, that childcare took such precedence. But also you, you saw Republicans trying to embrace that slightly. I mean, Ivanka Trump, the president's daughter, tried to make childcare a bit of an issue. And it's certainly something that I think American women, we have a, a quite expensive childcare system here because we have no nationalized system of childcare. So it's a huge economic burden on women and obviously has redounding economic effects and quality of life effects for women, particularly right now. You just mentioned the number of women that ran in the Democratic primary against Joe Biden. Very qualified women, but none of them came through to be the presidential nominee. Why do you think that was? 
a number of reasons. One, I do think that there was a certain Hillary hangover that people, even liberal Democratic primary voters, were spooked by Trump's win and by, I would say, the continuing revelations of the differences between the genders that happened during Trump's four years in office. I mean, we've had Me Too. I referenced the Brett Kavanaugh hearings where there was a huge gender perception gap about Kavanaugh and sexual assault. And I think Democrats have internalized a lot of that and wanted to be small C conservative about who they chose as their nominee, ultimately. To go back to kind of the electoral college thing and what states actually matter, when we talk about winning over swing voters, we are actually talking about an extremely small slice of the population. We're generally talking about white men in states like Florida or the upper Midwest, so Wisconsin or Michigan. And those are people with potentially particular cultural worldviews, right? They might be more socially conservative. And I don't even mean that about the traditional guns and abortion issues, but they might have some of those more pronounced unconscious biases about women in leadership. And so I think Democrats saw a lot of women in their field, but then they also spent a lot of time talking about, and I always put it in scare quotes, electability, because what does it mean to be electable, right? And Kamala Harris, obviously, who's now the vice presidential nominee, really, really talked about electability quite a lot in her campaign. I think both for strategic reasons and also I think it was probably a a personal bugaboo of hers, which was that, you know, she had won all of her elections. Right. So she said, I am thus electable. What do you actually mean when you say electability? There's women in the House of Representatives. There's women in local office, right? And people will say, well, I don't mind that woman, right? And I do think that there's a difference between women running for the House of Representatives level or the local office versus the presidency, because let's face it, how often are you watching constant cable news cycles or nationally televised debates featuring your local rep? You're not. And what you see when you turn on the television and see Kamala Harris or Kirsten Gillibrand or Elizabeth Warren is you see a woman who's being a politician, who's being a forceful voice. And I think that's when the inherent gender bias starts to kick in, where people say, yikes, a bit aggressive, or yikes, what is she wearing? Or yikes, there's something about it that just doesn't strike me the right way. But I'm not sexist because I voted for a woman for the House of Representatives, to which I would say, you're not maybe actually interacting with women on the public sphere as much as you would think. And so I think that we saw Democratic voters almost have that reaction. And Joe Biden is a very safe candidate. He's a moderate. He's an older white man who is associated with Barack Obama, a very popular president. And I think Democrats said it's not the year to take chances and nominating a woman is taking a chance. With Kamala Harris as the vice presidential nominee, what do you think the coverage has been like through a gender lens and through the lens of race, given she's the first woman of colour to be on a ballot in this way? Yeah, it's so interesting. She got so much more coverage during the primaries ever since she's been named the vice presidential nominee. She does fade into the background somewhat, in part, I think, because she is quite a good public speaker. She's a very polished person. And I think she would say one of the reasons why she's risen to prominence, one of the reasons why she's came into power was because she had to have a polished way of speaking. She had to sort of make her bones on being this prosecutorial senator, this person who was highly competent. But I think during the primaries, she got a lot of attention for being a prosecutor 
and for being a Black prosecutor, which I think ended up being a really interesting study in contradictions. So liberals were attacking Harris for being a prosecutor because they said, listen, she sent tons of Black men to prison. She was too punitive. She has risen in politics by putting Black men in prison. I can't believe that you want to nominate her. I think the the interesting thing about Harris as a Black woman, and I think probably a lot of Black women would maybe share this experience in women in general in politics, is that Harris took an extremely conventional and sort of marble halls approach to politics, in part, I think, probably because, you know, she, she said this before, that she wanted to make change from the inside, that she wanted to be part of the establishment. And I think probably maybe felt that a little bit more because she was a bit of an outsider, right? She is half Indian, half Jamaican. So she's like a complicated and interesting figure in that respect. And obviously, I think draws a lot more of a critique. You know, I was talking to South Carolina voters during the primaries. And one kid I talked to who was, you know, I think he was 20 year old college student. He said, well, you know, I'm not sure she like gets us necessarily. So I think Harris has this interesting persona of being perceived sometimes by certain parts of the Black community as being an outsider, but also she's being embraced because she is representative as a Black woman, as being the engine of the Democratic Party. But also, you know, she was too conservative, too prosecutorial, not liberal enough. So she's been an interesting figure, though I think as Biden's VP, she's polished. She's been sort of a calm presence. She's very reliably up and can do well in debates. And so I think that that's been a real virtue for his ticket. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you think, given the experiences that faced Hillary Clinton, that the media and the community in general are more alive to the gender stereotyping in politics now? I mean, to take one example of that, the first reaction of President Trump to the selection of Senator Harris as the vice presidential candidate was to say, you know, she's a nasty woman, no one likes her. And people immediately said, well, you know, that's just sexist stereotyping. That's what people do with women who have authority. They always say they're unlikable. Would that have happened in 2016? Or are we only here because of Hillary Clinton's experiences in 2016? And does that mean it's getting better, that we're more knowing about the sexism and more prepared to call it out? Yes, I do think there are silver linings to the revelation of misogyny in its many forms over the past four years. I mean, again, I go back to the Me Too movement and to sort of people putting words to the explicit problem of, well, this is the way that misogyny sometimes looks like, right? It isn't always overt sexual harassment. It can sometimes be these code words, right? There can be dog whistles for sexism as well as for racism. I think Trump has a harder time attacking Harris because he knows that Americans are more alive to the dog whistles of race and gender. So I think we've certainly gotten smarter about having those conversations. 
in the media. I won't say, you know, across the board, that's true. But I do think newsrooms are much more conscious about the way they cover certain stories, the way they emphasize certain things with female candidates. And frankly, I think a lot of this is that there were voices in newsrooms that were maybe saying, eh, why this story and, or why this emphasis in this story why, and not for that guy over there. I think the instincts and intuitions of women in media are probably also being listened to a lot more, right? Politics and, and media are still a very heavily male profession. And the life experiences of men obviously affect the way that they cover things as the life experiences of women affect the way that they cover things. And I think the past four years have made men and women, because women can obviously be misogynist, have made us all a bit more alive to experiences outside ourselves. And I think that that's been a good thing. A good development is the greater awareness of both race and gender. And coming to your own experiences in newsrooms, are they still a very male environment? Have you had to make your way in your career through quite male newsrooms where perhaps your views weren't taken on board as easily as a male reporter at the same stage or perhaps the stories you wanted to cover weren't given the prominence? My experience is, you know, I came up in magazines in Washington, D.C. and New York City. And I would say that those environments are generally liberal environments. And I mean that in the sense of probably politically, but like just in general, people being aware of not sexually harassing people in the office. And so, you know, reflecting on on gender difference and the way, you know, sexism might have affected my life or my career, I think it's, it's in a couple ways. One, when you're first starting out, I think women often start in media at different jobs. I started off as someone's assistant. I don't necessarily think that's true for men starting off. So that's one thing. Second is, okay, how do you get a new job? How do you move up from being the assistant or, you know, move up to being this kind of writer? Often it has to do with having someone in power be your champion, which means having them like you. And sometimes that's a woman. More often it's a man. You know, sometimes I think about the different personalities that women have in an office and what kind of personalities are valued and what kind of personalities are not. I would say I'm a person who is able to state her opinion, for better or for worse, pretty confidently, even, even sometimes when I'm wrong, or, you know, I'm okay with speaking publicly or pushing back a little bit. Some people aren't by dint of their personality, and those people might have much better ideas than I do. But sometimes in newsrooms, sometimes those people are women, sometimes those people are men, but oftentimes those people are women. Sometimes only certain kinds of voices are listened to in newsrooms. So I think that my career has probably been shaped by what kind of voice and personality is promoted and recognized. Reflecting on that, I think I probably have had to rise through the ranks by impressing men more than impressing women. And I'm sure that shapes the way you act in an office and the way you push back. And so so it's it's a little bit more subtle. You know, I think there's there are certainly times when I can think of where I'll say like, that's not my experience or like, yikes, this person did this or that. But I think broadly, the idea that you have to impress men in order to rise is kind of like the 30,000 foot out view of like, everything flows from that. Personally, at 538, for me, it's interesting because, you know, it's a site that's very personality driven by Nate Silver, who is a man, who's a man I like very much. But he and I have very different life experiences and very different perspectives. And it's interesting to watch people's perception of me filtered through Nate. So I think that's another kind of thing that probably a lot of women in media might feel, but that's my particular experience. You'll often get reader feedback where Nate has a, <laughs> has a prolific Twitter presence. 
And sometimes he'll tweet something that people don't like. And they'll say like, Claire, make sure he stays in line. And it's kind of this, this online projection of that, you know, what do they say that in the office, you're either the mommy or the bitch. Twitter, <laughs> Twitter thinks I'm the mommy, but maybe sometimes I'm the bitch at the office, right? But also that paradigm of the mommy or the bitch is terrible, but it's true in, in pretty much every workplace I've been in. And I think that these subtle things that sink in, you know, I have friends who are in who are lawyers or who are in banking. And I think the sexism is much more overt in those industries. With journalism, I think it's often this sort of more subtle thing that happens. So it's an interesting question to think about, uh, you know, the way, it, the way it has shaped me, because it certainly has. It's a fascinating discussion, but we're going to have to move on, unfortunately. And I'm going to come to the set of questions that we ask each guest at the end of the podcast. The first is a fact to respond to. And your fact is a recent article in the New York Times said that if only white men voted in the US, President Obama would never have been elected. And according to research from Pew, President Trump would be on track for re-election with a 12-point lead over Joe Biden. Your reaction? My reaction is that sounds about right. I think the reason why Obama won and the reason why Trump is down is that the past few decades of American life have been about revealing that while the white male experience has been the predominant force in American life thus far, that is changing and that it will not be the case for very much longer. That is a a worldview or a race even that will dominate the United States. So I think we've seen it particularly accelerated during the Trump era because of racial unrest in the United States, because of a lot of revelations of ugly, pervasive sexism, where your regular old American (laughs) male is probably, I think this is good, getting in his brain the worldviews of lots of other different kinds of people. So I think, you know, if I'm going to be an optimist here this evening, I'll say that potentially we're growing a more empathetic (laughs) American mind, but that it's still quite divided by worldview and experience. And there's lots of complicated reasons for that in every country in the world, but in America in particular because of our history. What's the worst misogyny you've had to deal with in your career? You know, the internet is a a terrible place sometimes. I don't know if that's like the worst misogyny. I mean, I think a lot of it is the accumulation of readers and sometimes I would say colleagues who don't accept that sexism can play a role in politics, but also in the life of, a, of an office or the life of coverage in the newsroom. It's a steady accumulation of things, if that makes sense, right? I guess microaggressions is what they call it, but that doesn't feel quite right. It's just, you know, the idea of, of sometimes, you know, working against an uphill battle and kind of constantly having to say a thing over and over again. If you could change one thing overnight for women, what would it be? I mean, if I'm going with, a, with an innovation in, in policy, I would say that I would wish that women would have access to better childcare because I think that that's a hugely influential and undercovered concern, particularly in America. But I think a lot of other benefits flow from changing that one thing. Virginia Woolf says, so long as you write what you wish to write, that is all that matters. And whether it matters for ages or only for hours, nobody can say. Claire Malone says? (laughs) I'd say that's true. I mean, we're different people from day to day, hour to hour. So what you write 
on Monday morning might be very different from what you write Monday night because something may have happened. And so there's value in knowing how you felt on that one day and that one particular moment in time. So that's what I'd say to it is that we're multitudes and, and recording our multitudinousness is, is an important part of being human. It certainly is. Claire Malone, thank you for a very timely, informative and insightful conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk. You've been listening to a podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. If you want to learn more about our work, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website and sign up to our updates. This podcast has been produced by Connie Blafari and James Miller with Kings Online with editing by Nick Hilton. If you liked what you've been listening to, we'd love it if you could rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We're always looking for feedback and it really helps people to learn more about our work. And please join us next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own.